Okay. Welcome, everybody, to the final class that we have on Sefer Kohelet. Mabruk to all of us, really, for, for getting this far. I think it's a remarkable thing that we were able to do this in the first place. Um, and, you know, it's been quite the, the journey to be able to uh, do this with you guys, to be able to explore all this level of thought and to be able to, you know, speak so freely. I feel, I feel so honored to have done it all these weeks with you guys, especially all of you are such great thinkers. And uh, really, it's been, it's been a growth process for me. I've learned so much. I've tried to take the wisdom and apply it to my life. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very daunting task to take on a book like this. It's, it's scary almost to grapple with some of these ideas, to the, the truth of it, and to just stare into the, the very stark truths and facts that Kohelet is giving us. But I think there's an incredible message, especially to this last chapter in light of everything we've done. And we're so lucky that we got to uh, read through the whole book and now finally delve into this last, last chapter together and really take the whole book in context and see how Kohelet is going to end off this really wonderful Sefer. So just a, a couple of words before we go into the Pesukim themselves. Really, um, the, the first eight Pesukim of the Perek are going to be a poem from Kohelet, and it's a very, you know, uh, kind of um, cryptic and enigmatic poem that we're going to see, but that doesn't take away from the profundity of it, and there's there's going to be three different lenses. Wow, thank you for coming. Uh, you guys didn't miss anything, I promise. So, <laughs> so I'm sorry, my back is to you. Um, so we're going to have three different lenses that we're going to analyze the first eight things we came from. It's going to be a poem from Kohelet that's, that's really interesting and involved, but there are three different ways traditionally of understanding it. The first way is allegorical, and that's the way that the, most of the Mepharshim have taken it, is that it's an allegory about the degeneration of the aging body. Um, but the problem is that it's very arbitrary. It doesn't seem so peshat, so we're not going to lean so much towards the allegorical lens. The second lens is the literal lens, the lens of just reading what the words have to say. And you know what? To be honest, I think this is where we're going to lean because it seems that this is really the story that Kohelet is trying to tell us from a Peshat perspective is what is going on when somebody is dying. And I know this is, uh, you know, it's very much in line with the whole Sefet is that, I, you know, I'm so excited you guys can't, are all here. I'm seeing you again, you again for the first time. I've been in Maine. I've been in Nashville, Tennessee. Finally, I get to come back. What are we going to talk about? Talk about death. <laughs> it's so, it's like imagine, so fitting. It's like imagine you stayed in Maine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you guys, you should go. Thank you, Lucky Stars. You're so fortunate that we get to talk about death on this Tuesday night. You know, uh, how lucky are we? But, but honestly, really, I, as you know, the more you talk about these scary topics, the more meaningful your life becomes. I think you learn a lesson that is to be had from these different discussions that we have, and it and it becomes so meaningful and so beautiful. Um, so we're going to be talking about human deterioration and death. Um, and we're going to describe the funeral of the Lord of an estate um, and the funeral procession, what that looks like, the coming of death. So that's the lens that I really want to take. And the final lens that some people have taken historically is the eschatological lens. The eschatological lens is a big word. Eschatology means, I looked it up today. It means, and I've heard it before, I just keep forgetting what it means. Eschatology is, you know, kind of like the day of judgment, this cosmic idea about, you know, kind of like an Armageddon or the day of judgment of the, or the day of the Lord, the day of God, having or pertaining to God's divine justice. So again, it doesn't really seem to, even though there are overtones of cosmic disaster in the, this poem of Kohelet, in his first Episukim, the point of it is not to say it's only talking about things on a cosmic level. It's saying that the death of you as an individual has cosmic overtones. It's the, it's the end of the world for you. It is the end of the world. It's the end of your world. And that's why Kohelet is going to be so emphatic in his language and describing this as basically so calamitous as though it's like really the end of the world. 
And that's an amazing concept to try to comprehend. Um, he's not actually describing the day of judgment, but as you're going to see, when you die, your world is ending. So just keep that in mind. But this is very in line with Kohelet thinking, as in he's very big into, let, let me do all the physical that I could possibly do because I'm going to die. And because exactly. I'm going to die, I have to enjoy anything I can because this world meaningless anyway. There you go. That's exactly it. And that's the beauty of the Sefer is that Kohelet, as we're going to see, he's going to end the same way that he began. Kohelet on purpose began with all that I did. Havel Avalim is going to end the same way. But the point is, what is the lesson here? It's not just a lamentation. This is not Sefer Echa. We're not just lamenting life. Kohelet is going to use his perspective on life and on death here to give us really sage advice as he has given us the whole way through on how to live life properly based on the knowledge of the fact that we're going to die one day. Um, so in Kohelet's telling the two events, the end of a world and the end of a person resonate in each other. I love that, that phrase right there, that, that quote from Michael Fox. Kohelet sets us, and this is interesting, it's very difficult language. We're going to see we're not going to quite understand exactly some of the phrases. We're going to try our best. But he sets us in a dark and broken landscape through which we must find our way with few guideposts. So it's amazing because in a fundamental sense, however, the obscurity of the details does not prevent us from understanding the poem. In fact, it is hard to fail. The gist of the poem is clear. Enjoy life before you grow old and die. So I think it's amazing that, that the, the enigma of the text itself is trying to reflect the enigma of life itself. And there's, there's sort, so, sort of like a, a shrouded in mystery as to what the heck are we reading? I think the same thing applies for life. Life is shrouded in mystery. Death is shrouded in mystery. We feel like we're feeling our way around, not quite knowing where we are, what's going on. And the text so brilliantly is going to reflect that in the phraseology. And I think that's such an amazing thing about the Tanakh, about literature in general, is that you could reflect content and the message of content in the structure and in the syntax and in the literary uh, devices that the author is going to use. So we can never fully penetrate the fog of the scene, but when we peer through the murk of the images, metaphors and symbols, we realize with a shudder that we are descrying our own obliteration. So that's exactly the point. It's very foggy. We don't know, quite know what's going on. But once we kind of make it through that surface and clear away some of that fog, we realize, in fact, we're staring our own mortality right in the face. And it's supposed to hit us that way. It's supposed to be something that's not so really clear. So now, without further ado, any questions before we, before we delve in? Any comments? Okay, great. So let's let's delve right in. Everyone can see my screen, I hope. Devre Kohelet ben David, Melech Birushalayim. The words of Kohelet, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So, oh, sorry, I'm in chapter one. I'm wondering if that's not how I remember chapter 12 beginning. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so appreciate your vigor in the days of your youth. Before those days of sorrow come and those years arrive, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So what is he saying here? He's saying, you're only going to be young for so long. Remember, appreciate your vigor. You might want to, like, I think the traditional interpretation, what's a bore? Bore alam, right? Zechoret borecha means remember God. That's, that could be the peshat hafashut to remember God in the days of your youth, but it doesn't really seem to fit with the context. The context is, so live life to the fullest while you're young. So it seems really, they translate that as remember, not your creator, but your bori, which is a rabbinic word. It seems to be probably related to some of the Aramaic, but remember your health, remember your vigor, remember the fact that you're still healthy and alive right now, you know, sometimes this is what I have to remind myself, like I'm getting so much in my mind, in my head, worrying about the future. Remember right now, remember how valuable it is. Thank God, Baruch Hashem, I'm young and I'm healthy. You know, at least you have your health. <laughs> As they say sometimes, your life could be going in all kinds of directions. But if you're healthy, you have a heck of a lot to be grateful for. 
And I'm sure old people, you know, you talk to them and they say youth is wasted on the young. There's a reason for that, that, you know, they, they realize what they don't have anymore. They don't have that figure anymore. So let's appreciate that figure. Um, but, you know, in fact, we, we left off last chapter with some sage advice from Kohelet telling us, you know, to remember the fact that your, your youth is fleeting and, and enjoy whatever your, your, your eyes and your heart are going to tell you. But he also says, that God is going to judge you. And we were debating whether or not that phrase was added in because it didn't seem to fit. So it seems like, oh, if you want to say that that's part of the text, then, then you want to say maybe Borecha here means God. Because, yeah, he was saying that. But if you think that was inserted, Borecha probably only means your strength and your vigor. So remember how that to have the strength and vigor. God will call you into account for such things as the other perspective on things. Um, and, you know, those years arrive of which you will say, I have no pleasure in that. So there's going to come a time when you're not able to go get up and play tennis and then drink 10 shots that night in, in the bar and then get up the next morning and go to work. You know, some of us, when we were 26, hypothetically speaking, I'm not saying I did all that in Nashville, but hypothetically speaking, of course, you, you're not going to be able to do that when you're when you're that old, you know, and you're not going to be able to just get up the next morning feeling invincible. So I have to take that to, to mind as well and realize how lucky I am to be 26. <laughs> so, <laughs> I gotta be careful what I say. It's all recorded. <laughs> when one is old, weak, and ill, many of life's pleasures become impossible. So you're not gonna be able to enjoy so many things when you're older. So really, don't forget to be present right now. I really, I really love this uh, this message. Any any questions or comments before we go to the next pasuk? Yeah, I have an 89 year old patient comes to see me today, and he wants a knee replacement so that he can go back to playing tennis. Wow. This guy's not, he's not playing tennis. It's not oh, happening. God. 89. But, but, you know, the daughter was with him and rolling her eyes the whole time. Like, you know, this guy's out <laughs> of his mind. What a but uh, anyway, it's, it's true is what I'm saying. It's true. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I, 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 I know it's true. But uh, at the end of the day, age really is a mindset. Even though it's true, there's only certain things you can do. I think if you're if you have that youthfulness about you, you could be doing anything and finding pleasure in it and enjoying it. So like those eighty-year-old people too. who are running out of park. There you go. There you go. I, I have so like much respect. One. I have really a, a tremendous amount of uh, admiration for that. Really, really yeah. I do. I but uh, with regards to the text, I have a question or two. First yes. of all, Borecha, could that not mean your creation, as in you know when you were uh, brought into being? Ah, you're saying the day of your birth, almost. Not really the day your birth, but yes, in a roundabout way. Meaning your your newness when you were new, when you were just created. You know, you had all that life and vigorousness. Ah, interesting. I like that. Yeah. I, um... And then you may have ah. I don't know where they come up with the uh, sorrow. I would. I, I guess would be like your bedi ah, your your creation. But I I definitely could see what you're saying. And then you're saying you may have ah the days of sorrow. You don't like sorrow. No, yeah, sorrow sounds like sorry, but it really just means something yeah. a little different. Sadness and, and difficulty. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I love that insight. I think that's spot on. I think Borecha could certainly mean the days of your, the, just the, fa the fact of your creation, 100%. And those early days of vigor, for sure. So let's see Pasuk 2. So I really love this. Something so humbling about the this the language of these pesukim it's almost i don't know why this is the imagery but if you've ever read the um the book good night moon anybody ever read the book good night moon of course you read it right when you were a kid right good night moon good night a spoon good night chair good night mittens good night kittens good night cow jumping over the moon i i just exactly. <laughs> tonight i'll read it to you guys before you go to sleep just so you have something to, to say you had, there you go. That'll be the next class I give. <laughs> so it's there's something about, I just get this sense of comfort. And I know that sounds crazy because Kohela doesn't mean it to be so comforting. But it's almost like, you know, turning the lights off, turning the lights off to life, you know, and realizing it comes to an end. It doesn't have to be something that's so gloomy. He does have a little bit of a, of a gloomy, you know, texture to it. But for some reason, in, inside of my own mind, 
it, I, I run to this in good night moon book and that feeling that I have when I think of that, or that feeling like you had an amazing day. You just, yeah, I played sports all day. You're really tired and you tuck yourself into bed and you just think about what an amazing day that was. I feel like that's a perspective we can have at the end of life. You're 99 years old. You're looking back at your life and you, you don't have to lament anything. You don't have to, you know, cling to it. You could have a good death. You could realize, wow, how fortunate was I to have all that fun and all that meaning. And God knows what the next chapter is. Maybe this is not just the end. Maybe there's something waiting for me on the other side of this doorway. And I think uh, for, for, there's something about the text. And you guys can tell me if you feel that same way, just reading it. Before sun and light and moon and stars grow dark and the clouds come back again after the rain. Right. So it's, it's giving you all this beautiful imagery of the celestial bodies, you know, running out of their light. You know, uh, we know that the sun is eventually going to run out of hydrogen and that's it. That's it for the sun. And, you know, God knows what star humanity will be surrounding at that time, but the sun has a half-life to it as well. There's only so much, uh, I believe it's fusion that the sun can do to give us um, that much light and that much energy for so long. Um, so some people, you know, the, the one school of thought would interpret this as the eyes getting older. But like I said, it's really a metaphor for the moment of death that the light goes out is really the light of life. The light of your life will one day completely go out. Um, you know, and the clouds going out could be like your, your eyes gr growing blurry from the tears. Um, but the literal meaning is that the survivors are going to be weeping and there's going to be gloom. And it's going to be like a day of cloud because of your death. It's trying to say, when you die, this is what the world is going to look like. It's going to be gloomy. There's going to be people crying because you're going to be gone. And just, just come to terms with that fact. Delve into and stare in the face fully this day of death. And this is what it's going to be like in a way. And he's going to continue painting this, this wonderful picture for us. Uh, Pasuk 3, any, any comments or questions before we move on? When the guards of the house become shaky and the men of valor are bent. And the maids that grind grown few are idle and the ladies that peer through the windows grow dim. Right? So how beautiful is this? It's saying kind of like everyone's in a way, going to sleep. That's the way I see it. But also, it's everyone is finishing their work. A long, a long day's work is finally complete, right? And it could be talking about the knees or the flanks or the ribs, but we don't have to go that direction. We could say, really, it's talking about the keepers and the guards of the house who shudder in, in mourning and dismay. People are mourning over you. That's what's happening right now. Um, the, the, the mill maids are stopping their work because of the funeral. Um, there's a lot of melancholy and grief to the women of the house because they're, they're mourning your death. Really, that's just the, the, the simplest explanation. Um, and it's just trying to paint this picture for you of the, the kind of the fallout when you die. And I remember reading a, a great story when I was in Flappish High School of, um, you know, we read a lot of these Zionist stories. Of course, it's very uh, relevant to now when Israel is under so much fire. Um, I remember reading a story in Hebrew about the perspective from Shamaim of a dead soldier, of a dead Israeli soldier looking down from Shamaim at everything that's going on on earth. And he's watching as his family's mourning for him, and he's watching as everything's going on in, on earth. And he wants to send them a message of love and thank them, and he knows how much they meant to him. And that's such a beautiful thing to ponder, you know, even while we're alive, imagine, God forbid, you died tomorrow. If you had that perspective standing in heaven and looking down at, at all the people who love you and all the, the positive energy that you gave off, I think, what's that Christmas movie that I think is, uh, is all about that? I think it's A Wonderful Life or something like that. There's a whole movie dedicated to that where a person doesn't realize the value that he plays on this planet. And if you could only take that perspective of how beautiful and moving that is, how much you would be missed. And that's such a, a beautiful picture that he's painting for us here. The day that you die is going to be like this. And it's humbling, but it's also 
quite beautiful to see the way that this affects the world. But it will be just temporary. Let's see. And the doors to the street are shut with the noise of the handmill growing fainter. And the song of the bird growing feebler and all the strains of music dying down, right? Everything is growing quieter, right? The, the double doors are closing, right? Literally, the, during the funeral, the doors possibly to the town bazaar, to the shuk, are closing down. Um, the noise of the mill is growing fainter, meaning that the, the grinding of grain Usually one of the background sounds of ordinary domestic life is stopping temporarily because you died, right? And the voice or your voice could be diminishing as you're dying. The song of the bird growing feebler is that, you know, the, the or really the truth is, if you read it literally, seems to mean something closer to, and one rises to the voice of a bird or the bird rises to song. In other words, the, the word, the, the bird is starting to sing Right, the line might allude to the morning sound of birds of ill omen, like we know from Sefer Micha. I will lament as sadly as the jackals, as mournfully as the ostriches. So something about the, you know, a crow maybe a crow cawing during your death, or an ostrich making a certain sound, um, or even if you want to take the eschatological view, the depopulated world is going to be full of just the howls of these different birds, and all the strains of music are dying down. Uh, literally, the daughters of song are these singing women, right? They were professional mourners who would come during a funeral procession and they would chant their laments while bow, bow, uh, bowing down to the ground. So it's so humbling. He really goes into a grave detail, you know, uh, to give to give a very, very funny, funny joke. He goes into grave detail here about what your grave is going to look like. I never got such a, a big laugh. From such a punny dad joke, but I'm glad. I'm, I'm very glad you liked that, Lauren. That uh, was great. I just had to, to kind of slice through the morbidity of uh, of what we're reading about, right? So, gum. Any any uh, any anyone want to interject? By the way, before we move on, I know it's very involved, but I think it's really beautiful at the same time. I think I see from these couple of uh, lines that we just yeah. went through. I think that. Everything that we're reading comes to the fact that I don't think these are genuinely happen. What I think is that as he's dying, he's noticing these things. And once he dies, for him, it's not yeah. to everybody, to him in particular, the noise of the handmill stops. He doesn't hear exactly. It. Everyone he's else saying, hears it. Yes. He's, he's done. From, from that person's perspective, this yeah. is what's happening. And it's all metaphorical, of course. It's right. all trying to, in a way, metaphorical, but also painting a, a picture with imagery of what it's going to be like for you. When you die, exactly. So I, I want to object because, <laughs> you know, the way Kohelet sets up his life, he doesn't care about anyone. I don't even see him relating to anyone in this whole book, although I did miss some of it because I, I missed some a couple of weeks. But in other words, according to Kohelet, does anyone really care that he's dying? I mean, uh, I thought uh, you come, you go. It is what it is. You know, life is... Uh, but a dream or whatever in other words yeah, well, so you know, we, we it, definitely we definitely will see that in a couple of pisukim we will see exactly what you're saying but he does so, uh, having a wife it seems and in, in uh chapter nine enjoy life with the wife that you love on all the days under the sun yeah so but does, does he really talk about human connections that people are going to mourn him and care for him and bury him and attend his funeral yeah, and right. shut the whole town down he does not. Yeah. So I think you have to take a different view, and yeah. uh, meaning this is more his own perspective, not the mourners. Yeah. Uh, I think I think you're right. I, I'm giving it a little bit of a positive view, but I think you're right. He means it with a downbeat tone of like you as the reader internalize that this is what it's going to be like for you. There's going to, he want. I don't think he's emphasizing the people around you for the social connections. I think he's trying to tell you, look what it's going to be like for you. Look how morbid, look how dark and dreary that day is going to be. That's the Pshat Apashut. He's saying, understand just how dreary this day will be when you go. Yeah, you know, I agree. I'm not there to see it, but we'll, we'll see uh, exactly what you're saying in a couple of Pesukim too. Because otherwise you're taking it like, oh, look at this. These people are 
slowing down for me. You know, they care about me. They're, they're shutting the down, town down for me, but I, that can't be what he means. Yeah, you're definitely right. I, he doesn't mean that to add meaning to your life. That's for sure. He doesn't. He just means he's trying to impress upon you. Look, you will die. Understand it. Let me paint the picture for you. You're going to die. It sounds like it's straight from a movie. Like, it really this does. Is, this is how like like someone dies. This is how like the scene goes down. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. I feel like you've also yeah. seen this very like lack of human connection because if you're thinking about your day of death, you would be thinking about maybe your parents, your siblings, your loved ones. But he's talking about like maids and like the house workers. It's like a weird choice of character mm. of people to be upset over your death. Yes. It's interesting. I think that's exactly the point is that none of these people are really close social people that he knows. It's just like the professional mourners are going to give him this procession. It's just a funeral procession. No mention of his wife and kids or friends. It's just the official procession of the funeral. That's a great point. And Dr. Nasser, I think that's exactly to your point that it's not his social connections. It's just that this is the way that it is for anybody run of the mill funeral procession yeah and that's also, the point. Yeah. like interesting because you wouldn't think that these people would be affected so like mm. i feel like if you put both the people who are important to him and those people it would have been like okay great wow he's seeing you know that not only are the people close to him people who are mourning him but also look how many people he touched because yes he only put those people yeah i feel you i i think that's exactly right i think it's he's emphasizing it's only those people that he wants to focus on Perfect. Really good. Um, so let's keep going. Pasuk 5. When one is afraid of heights and there is terror on the road, for the almond tree may blossom, the grasshopper be burdened, right? Uh, and the caper bush may bud again. But man sets out for his eternal abode with mourners all around in the street. So Dr. Nasser, this is actually the pasuk that I think uh, goes in line very much with what you were saying. Um, so instead of it translating, by the way, for one is afraid of heights, you could also say they fear also what is on high. Um, so this might mean that the mourners fear Hashem, they fear God. According to Ibn Yahya, that's what it means, that the, the mourners are the ones who are afraid of, of God in a way. Um, and there is terror on the road. The scenes of dismay mark the processional. This may refer to the formalized expression of grief in the morning rites. So there's terror. This terror is just a formal grief and a formal terror that's happening during the funeral procession. The almond tree blossoming and now this is where it really becomes spot on to what you were saying, Doc, and what he said in the rest of the Sefer. So really the, the next three images are going to show the contrast to human fate. So humans, once they die, that's it. That's it for you. You're gone. You're finished. Strike three, you're out. No more. Finito, right? But nature, on the other hand, unlike men, is reborn every springtime. Right. So it's not like man. Man, once he dies, he dies. Nature keeps on renewing itself and renewing itself. So this is what Kohelet's trying to tell you now. He's saying, look, you're going to die. And the show goes on as though you never existed. So you'll have one day where they'll have a funeral procession for you and they'll hire people to, to mourn for you and all that. But at the end of the day, you know what's going to happen? The almond tree is still going to blossom. You're going to be gone. And what else? The grasshopper is going to be burdened. And some people translate instead of grasshopper, they, they translate it as carob tree because a locust is actually the English word for the carob tree. And there's a whole thing going on there. But if you want to translate it as carob tree, uh, what does it mean that it's going to be burdened? It's going to be laden with fruit. It's going to have it's going to bear fruit again and you're going to be gone that whole time. And the caper bush may bud again. And these plants, all these are all kinds of plants that seem dead during the year. They seem like they had no, no life going on during the year. But then they spring to life again, and you're going to be dead. It's a, it's a really stark contrast here. Um, and it's trying to say, those things revive, unlike humans, will, which will not revive. That's it for you. Um, and all the mourners are going to be in the street. This is the funeral procession. There's trained chanters of laments. 
Um, and again, it's not people that are close to him. So I think this is exactly the point is that understand your temporariness. Understand that this is what Hevel means. Hevel doesn't just doesn't mean meaningless. In some places, that's how he means it. In this context, he means it's all fleeting. It's all ephemeral. It's all passing by. So that's why the only thing that makes sense in life, really, and I fully agree with this, is to be in the moment. If you're not living in the moment, where the heck are you? Because that's all that really ever exists, is this transitory moment right now. So if you're not able to be there, you're living somewhere else that doesn't exist. You're living in some kind of illusion. And life is just going to pass you by. Either way, the only thing that's worth doing, it seems, you might as well just live now. Because what do you got to lose? You're going to end up with a funeral procession either way. That's the way it ends. So I think that's really a, a beautiful message. You know, despite the doom and gloom of it, it makes all the sense in the world. Any questions before we move on? Comments? I like this next thing you made from Spock because it's kind of just, your death is also just part of the natural thing. I feel like Beautiful. That's Beautiful. I agree. I think that's, that's the circle of life. That's exactly it. You, you are ashes. You go back to ashes. You know, you're, you are it. You, you're, you're literally, you are the matter of the universe. You are stardust incarnate that somehow developed so complexly this brain and the cerebral cortex to think and have consciousness and make more of itself. But the point is that you're it. You're still part of this physical universe and you're going to return to it. And that there's a beauty in that as well. And it's very, it's a humbling beauty, but it's a beauty no less. Before the silver cord snaps and the golden bowl crashes, the jar is shattered in the, at the spring and the jug is smashed at the cistern. All right, so all these things are symbols of death. It seems that these were all parts of the, the, uh, the death uh, rituals that they would do. So the silver cord snapping is, is symbolic of the person's hold on life. You're you know, almost like the fates, like they had an ancient... Greek mythology, they had these fates with a string connected to you. And once the fates cut that string, that's it. Chalas, you're dead. That golden string, silver cord, is like that hold that you have on life is being severed. That's it for you. The golden bowl crashing is representing life for your physical body. Your physical body is the vessel of life. It's the golden bowl. And it was filled for so long, but eventually it's going to fall and disintegrate. The jar that's shattering at the spring represents again human life, um, and it's and you know amazingly they found archaeologically a lot of deliberately broken vessels in Jewish tombs of the Second Temple period. So when somebody would die, they would break vessels to show, look, this person's dead body is like a vessel that's been broken. All right, so they were smashed as part of the funeral rites, symbolizing that life is now shattered. It's, it's a way, almost it's cathartic for the mourners to come to terms and come to grips with the fact that their loved one is gone. Let me break this physical object to impress upon myself what just happened. So is there implications of restitution to like other cultures? Because like in Egypt or many other places, they would put parts of the body, like the heart or the brain or whatever, into yes. these jars. You know, so it's interesting that they're like, no, like this is not. Not only do we not do any mummification, we also break... Yeah. Physical yeah. objects. Beautiful. Because we fully understand the transitoriness of life. Yeah. And that's it. Once you're done, you're done. Once you're gone, you're gone. Right? Uh, one more phrase. And the jug is smashed. The cistern suggests a body lying useless in the grave. Right? The cistern is also used uh, for grave in other parts of the Tanakh. So the cistern here, um, the board could be, you know, just a person lying still. And that's it. There, there you are. Um, <laughs> an interesting word, galgal, right? The galgal, what does that sound like? I just noticed that. Say it again? Yeah, circular. circular, right? Galgalim, right? We say that on, uh, on, um, Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah. Galgalim are things that are soviv, right? The, the celestial bodies uh, and those spheres in the heavens 
So maybe you could have that double entendre that life is like a circle. Life is cyclical. Life will go on. There's life and death and death and birth. And there's this endless cycle that continues on and on. And you know what? To be honest, you cannot have death without having life. You can have life without having death. Yeah, but it's smashed. So it's, it's, it's more personal to you. And the Galgal in that case would be the seasons of your, your, your life. Yes. Uh, you know, your, your individual circle is smashed. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think the fact that it's a Galgal in the first place, you know, like I think um, one of the traditions in, uh, that we have even till today is when you eat a seuda after somebody dies, you eat a lot of round foods. You eat a lot of round foods. This is what I learned in high school. And the reason that they serve you round foods is the circle of life, is to remind you that. So maybe the Galgal, even though it's being smashed, something about the circle of life, but I, I hear you. It is being smashed at the end of the day. Yeah, if it wasn't being smashed, it would work better. And also you could think about Galgal as in other lives that you get to live because uh, that's another uh, you know concept as you come back as another person. Something like that. Absolutely, 100%. You know, I, I used to be so skeptical of reincarnation, but... Just I've become I've become much more mystical. I don't think that's a secret to anybody who's heard some of my classes. And you know, um, I I could see it. I can understand. I don't know about the idea of having a specific neshama going to another neshama, but I think we are all part of this infinity. We are all a manifestation of that infinity that somehow is aware that it's aware. We are infinity that's aware that it's aware, and somehow we we are born and we die and we come back and. The, the, the Buddhists, and I'm forgive me for always quoting them. And if I was if, if I was going to get fired for this, I would have been fired long ago. So I'll just speak freely anyway. The Buddhists have a beautiful idea of the illusion of everything, the illusion of separation. That really you are already all of it. You already are continuous with the whole damn thing. Right now, you are not. You can't talk about Michael Franco unless you talk about the rest of the universe. Like you can't talk about a, a black dot unless you talk about the white page. You can't just have a black dot. You wouldn't know what it was. It's like looking at the page way too closely. You're not going to be able to see it unless you have the background in comparison with the letters. So there's no such thing as Michael Franco. You know what there is such a thing as? Michael Franco universe. Really, you cannot speak about Michael Franco or any of us at all unless you speak about the rest of the entire cosmos. Because otherwise, you're just speaking about something in isolation. It really makes no sense. So I think the truth is you already are all of it. You already are infinity. But this ego of yours is going to die. But the truth is whatever you truly are is never going to die. You already are and already you already were and never stopped being, even right now, that infinity. So this ego might die, but I think that infinity will always go on. And it exists right now. And the whole idea of having a separate self is an illusion in the first place. So that's a beautiful idea. And, you know, the illusion of, of separation. It was, oh, the idea of emptiness. You know, the, the Buddhists love talking about it. everything is emptiness. Once you see through it, it's really all emptiness. And by that, they mean that unless you have nothingness, you can't have somethingness. So when they say emptiness and nothingness, they don't mean that in like a bad way. We think... As Westerners, we think of emptiness as this bad thing, this sad thing, this powerless thing. And I get all this stuff from, from Alan Watts, by the way. I highly recommend listening to him. He's a really amazing thinker. He died in 1973. I can't say enough about him. But he says, you know, it's not a powerless thing. Without nothingness, you can't have somethingness. The same thing without birth, you cannot, you, without death, you can't have birth. Without the white page, you can't have the black dot. It's all relative. It's all based on the other thing. So in order to have all the something that we know of, you have to have all that nothingness that it really emerges from. And it's not something I could put into words. It's really something to experience through meditation or whatever other means you want to use. But if you experience that nothingness, it's not necessarily something to be lamented. It's something to appreciate as the very foundation and basis for the somethingness that we experience. That's very deep stuff. But to me, it really makes a lot of sense. Any questions or comments before we go on to Pasuk 7? We're almost done with the, with the little poem. Yeah, where can I find Buddha? Where you can find Buddha? Oh, my God. You just asked the question of the koan that I listened to today. But uh, 
time? Literally, yeah. I, I, it's it's not so appropriate for me to answer the con because it's a little bit weird. You know, you know what? Screw it. It's the last class. I'll say <laughs> it anyway. Go. You know what? You know what? So this is a, a Zen koan is actually uh, these riddles that students would be assigned by their master gurus um, in ancient, uh, you know, Japan. And one of the, the, the part of Sam Harris's waking up app, he has the koan way and it's meditations with koans. And I absolutely love them. The one that I had today. It's a, this is like a tap on the shoulder for me when things like this come up. The student asked the guru exactly what you just said. What is the Buddha? Where is the Buddha? What is he? And he's not talking about Buddha, the person. He's talking about the Buddha nature, the enlightened, awakened nature that's inside each and every one of us. That part of you that is already in bliss, the part of you that already is aware of infinity. And you know what the, the, uh, the guru answered? The guru answered that the Buddha is a dried turd. That's why I was hesitant to answer. What does that mean? It's hilarious. He really strikes you with that answer. Why is, why is the Buddha a dried turd? Well, you know what the answer is? It's hilarious. It's, it's crazy to even think about. What does it mean? It means that we have this visceral gut reaction to judge. Turd is disgusting. But when you have the non-judgmentalism, that's enlightenment. When you can look at birth and death, something and nothing, and appreciate both of them just as they are, instead of judging nothingness as bad, instead of judging death as bad and just accepting. So if you, if you think God only is God of the gaps in a way, if God is not also providing for evil in a way, if God is not also providing for the existence of disgusting things from my perspective, then what is God? That's not God. God has to be all of infinity. And infinity includes the dark side, includes the negative. It's the yin and the yang. It, you, you know, you have a wave. A wave cannot exist unless there's a crest and a trough. You never had a crest without a trough. and You never had a trough without a crest. They're both sides of the same coin. It's like saying, I want a coin with only heads. You have to have tails as part of the same coin. So part of infinity is a dry turd. Unless you can accept that and understand that, you're not, you're not, you don't know where Buddha is. So I, I just, I'm happy I got to, to tell you guys that. Yes, Victor. Uh, you ever see the movie I Heart Huckabees? No. Okay, it talks about all this. It's an excellent movie. Wow, I got to watch that. Ties it all together. Yeah, add it to your list. 100%. I'm going to text you later for the name of it. Thank you. Okay. All right. So I'm glad I, I got to tell you all that because right. I think it's so beautiful and meaningful that once you take that godly perspective of everything just is, and I'm not saying that that means you shouldn't go out and fix the world. Yes, go out and fix the world. But first, get to that place of balance. Get to the place of I accept the world just as it is. And I don't insist on if this is the Buddhist perspective. And I'll be honest, it's not the Jewish perspective. The Jewish perspective is be at dis-ease with what is and go and fix it. The Buddhist perspective is not just accept everything as it is. And from that place of balance, go out and fix the world. Not because you have to, but just because that's what there is to do. Because love is, love is truth. And that's, that's a different perspective that I think is very profound. And I'm still looking for ways to resolve that with Judaism. You know, is it possible to resolve those two? And that's still part of my uh, my thinking and my experience. So let's continue. Yeah, before before we go too far yeah, into the rabbit hole, I, I feel like the, the, the more I talk about Buddhism, the, the further, the deeper I dig my grave. Hopefully, Rabbi Hittari doesn't listen to this recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's in Israel. He's six thousand miles away. Oh, but this is this is being sent to his cloud. I better be careful. Yeah, show me. Exactly. He's getting it's gonna actually be sent to him the second the recording ends. And the dust returns to the ground as it was. And the life breath returns to God who bestowed it. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The decomposition of the living being. Right? You know, let's see. Uh the human body is so this is the opposite. Of uh, of Bereshit, you know, right? Uh, he took dust and he breath, bre you know, and he breathed life into it, right? So yeah. this is just the uh, the opposite. Exactly, the breath that he breathed into you is returning to its creator. And by the way, this has nothing to do with neshama. 
It's not your soul. It's the life breath. It's the, the force of life that you had is now being returned and that's it. It's gone. And it's, it's a beautiful, it's almost like closing off a lot of parts of the Tanakh, this idea of ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? Um, it says in Bereshit, you are dust and you shall return to dust. You're, that's what you are. We have all these. You're not, you're not hearing, you're not hearing you know, from here. Yes, definitely not. That only appears in Sefer Daniel, and even that's, you know, debatable about what, what that exactly means. But great point, exactly. Um, and now, finally, we're on the last pasuk of his poem before we reach the epilogue. Havel havalim amar havel. Right? Utter futility, said Kohelet, all is futile. Amazingly, if you remember, that was the second pasuk of the entire book. So, and these are the last words of Kohelet himself, because the epilogue is written clearly by somebody else. It speaks about Kohelet in the third person. The second pasuk was, So it's almost exactly identical. It's just you have one more Havel Havalim in chapter one. But here he's literally tying a bow around the book. So I just want to read you some of the comments from Michael Fox, because they're so profound. And I, this really moved me deeply to read the way that he, he closes off Kohelet's words before we enter into the epilogue. This verse is the pivot, the pivot between the poem on dying and the epilogue. It belongs to both units. The pronouncements in chapter 1 and chapter 12 summarize Kohelet's teachings and bracket the book between them. This is like an envelope around the entire book. Human life ends in Hevel, the ultimate void or absurdity. The teaching of Kohelet thus ends where it began. Though he complains that he did not find the wisdom he sought and that the world remained opaque. right? So he wanted to find this wisdom. He wanted to understand something about the world, about the way that the world works. And he was frustrated. He couldn't quite get there. And he never did. He has, in fact, discovered a wisdom, a more modest, pragmatic one. Different from philosophical understanding of life he set out to seek, he wanted a certain philosophical understanding of life, but instead he, he came out with a different kind of wisdom that we were all lucky enough to experience throughout the Sefer. His honesty and his simple counsels have provided a way to face life frankly and to experience whatever pleasures we are granted. Right, So he gave us practical advice with the understandings that he did have about life. In fact, he was very wise. He understood exactly that that's the point. You can't understand. And it's all limited and you're going to die. And it's all ephemeral. And therefore live in the moment and experience the pleasures of today. But don't go too far with it. Experience the pleasures today in a, in a temperate way and enjoy life as best you can in the moment. That's really all there is to it. These are the pleasures we're granted. We must accept both our limitations and life's inequities, not by avoiding them but by living in the present, which is all we can have, right? So all we got is this present moment. This, that's all we could ever hope for. So accept the limits of life, accept the injustices, accept the evil. This is exactly what we were just talking about. And to be honest, this is a very Buddhist book. It's a much more Buddhist book than it is a Jewish book. And I think that's why it's bringing out all this Buddhism from my mind is that this, that's the point, is he's trying to give you this, this idea. That's all there is to it, is just accepting what is and trying to make the best of this present moment. And there's something very humbling and very beautiful about that. And it really, I think, does drive us to live much more thorough and meaningful lives. Instead of insisting constantly that life be more than it is, we can accept it for what it is. And from there, from that point of balance, we can build a good world and build a good life and an enjoyable, happy life. Not from a place of neuroticism and anger, but instead from a place of equanimity and balance, understanding the yin and the yang, and that you need equal parts evil to have equal parts good. You need plus 10, you need minus 10 to have plus 10. You can't have it any other way. So I think that was so beautiful and so moving. So before we move on to the epilogue, um, does anybody wanna make any comments? Let's do it. Um, so the epilogue now is a different voice clearly speaking. It's some anonymous teacher that we're going to hear from. Um, the teachings 
uh, are admired of Kohelet. They're viewed, however, with a certain hesitation. So the, the teacher is not going to fully, fully accept everything just at face value that Kohelet said. Um, clearly, this was added by a later editor, according to one perspective. This editor supposedly considered Kohelet's words too unorthodox. He said it's too much, too far out. And he wants to counteract them with a pious assurance and some pious precepts. Other people say, no, even Kohelet um, is, is part of this epilogue. And he himself was quoting other people the whole book. It doesn't really matter how you want to take it. Um, but at the end of the day, this is clearly separate from the rest of the book. Um, the, the, the real gist of it is that wisdom holds certain dangers. It's dangerous to have so much wisdom. Um, and, it, you know, really wisdom takes second rank to piety and obedience to God's law. And by the way, the truth is uh, that Kohelet would agree that even after all is said and done, you should have obedience to God's law. He does mention repeatedly that God is sovereign. And you should understand you will be judged at the end of the day. So that's not against what he's saying. But that doesn't mean that Kohelet wouldn't also agree that you should go out and seek pleasure. And you should go out and enjoy life for what it is today. So maybe this, he, maybe this epilogue is walking back Kohelet's words a little bit too far, but they're not totally against what he would say. So let's see Pasuk 9. A further word, because Goyal was a sage, he continued to instruct the people. He listened to and tested the soundness of many maxims. So that's who Kohelet was. He was a teacher. And this is why it seems Kohelet was not Shalom HaMelech. He was just this. He was a sage. He was a person who instructed the people as a sage, not as a king. But he had Solomonic level of wisdom. And he listened to and he tested the soundness of all these maxims. The point being that this was a selection of Kohelet's teachings. He had many other teachings, it seems, that were not mentioned in this book. Um, but the point is also that this book is not supposed to be a group of esoteric teachings, but rather they were meant to be applicable. They're not too dangerous for the public's ears. There's something that was taught regularly to regular students. Reminds me, I think Socrates it was, right? who had to drink hemlock for teaching the youth, for corrupting the youth. And you could think of Kohelet being kind of censored, cancel culture, but in the same way, that you can't corrupt the youth. No, that's what, that wasn't the way that it was. These were Mishalim, and these were ideas that he was meant to teach the, the layman, the regular people on the street. I don't, uh, I don't buy it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe that... Uh... He was able to teach the uh, the youth uh, and the people on the street this stuff. This is clearly uh, the type of thing that most uh, in authority would discourage. I, I agree. I think, yeah, isn't it ironic that that the epilogue, which is trying to temper the words of Kohelet, is saying, oh, yeah, he, he was able to teach this all around, but I'm going to temper his words anyway. So that's a good point. It's, a, it's very ironic that that would be the case. Also, just because he instructed people doesn't mean Yes, exactly. It's not necessarily true that people were receptive to his message, even if he did go and tell people this stuff. It's definitely true. sought to discover useful sayings and recorded genuinely truthful sayings. So really what he was after was useful proverbs, things that are really applicable to our lives. And we saw a lot of that in the past chapters throughout the book, really. And he really wanted wisdom. He really was seeking after truth. And that is such an admirable thing. As much as I criticized him for, for certain kinds of depressive thinking and not and thinking too much of black and white, there was really a nobility to what he was saying and what he was the way that he was thinking. The sayings of the wise are like goads, like nails fixed and prodding sticks. They were given by one shepherd, right? So it's just trying to point you the picture here that these sayings are trying to prod people, like a, like a prod used by a shepherd or an ox goad. And even though they do prod you to do the right thing, they can sting and they can provoke and they can hurt a little bit. Here, this very strict truth but at the end of the day it's worth hearing um and another way to, to translate the end of it is instead of saying 
that it's from God, you know, that's the way it would seem. It seems like that's talking about um, the, all these different prodding sticks, all these types of wisdom were made by this shepherd, right? So instead you could say the words of the sages are like goads and those of the masters of collections um, are like implanted nails stuck in by a shepherd, right? That a shepherd was the one who, who fashioned all these different things. And that's the way that sages are. They're like a shepherd who made a goading stick to try to goad you to do the right thing. Um, beautifully, the hachamim would take this as a way of explaining mahloket throughout Tanakh, sorry, throughout the, the um, uh, Shas, we see so much mahloket and somehow we see elu ve'elu haim, how could it be? Well, it seems that this is the, this is the way they take it uh, homiletically, metaphorically. It's all given from God. So even if one is right and one is wrong, it's the process of studying Torah that's all from God. So Torah and judging, the very activity of studying Torah and judging Torah is itself from God. And that's a beautiful thing. It's the process that counts. And that all proceeds from God's wisdom. Um, and even this idea of Ba'ale uh, Asupot could mean that it was, uh, these Ba'alim are not the text's authors, but rather learned specialists in them, that maybe there were some collections of wisdom here from learned specialists but that's not really so important for our uh, discussion now as to whether or not all this stuff was really from Kohelet's mind or from a lot of things that he gathered, probably a little bit of both. Um, a further word against them, my son, be warned. The making of many books is without limit and much study is a wearing of the flesh. Right, so what he's saying is, be wary when reading the words of the wise. Be careful, because all types of wisdom, it just could never end. It could be overwhelming. There's so many ideas. So study is good, but it shouldn't be overdone, right? And it seems that even Kohelet himself would agree with that. Even though Kohelet loves wisdom, he thinks it's also Hevel. And he realizes that at a certain point, enough of this left brain stuff, enough of the philosophizing, just go out and live. Just go out and follow God's will and lead a, a straightforward life. That's really as simple as that. Let's see what he says here. The famous Pasuk, Sof Davar Akol Nishma, Et Elohim Yira, Et Mitzvotav Shemor, Kol Adam. The sum of the matter, when all is said and done, revere God and observe his commandments, for this applies to all mankind. So that's the point. Enough philosophizing, enough with the wisdom. Wisdom could burn you. It could sting you as you get too involved. Look what happened to Kohelet, it seems. At the end of the day, everything has been heard. This is the end of the matter. So this is like the postscript of the book. Kohelet would not disagree, it seems. Just go out and follow God. He advocates for fear of God in chapter 5, chapter 7. He insists on divine judgment in chapter 3 and chapter 11. So the epilogue is really firmly and definitively stating this principle that applies to everybody, just go out and live a righteous lifestyle. You really can't go wrong that way. And, you know, you'll avoid a lot of the heartache of delving too much into too much philosophy and too much wisdom. So in line with the book, The Master and His Emissary. Yes, Doc? Yeah, this is clearly koshering, you know. This is a little bit of, uh, you know, touching up. Because Kala yeah. really doesn't use the word mitzvah anywhere in his... Um, uh, again, I maybe missed the paragraph. No, I think but, you're uh, right. I think you're absolutely right. It's definitely adding a, an element to uh, to the religiosity and the piety of the Sefer, for sure. Absolutely. So let's see the last pasuk, and then we'll open it up to a discussion. That God will call every creature to account for everything unknown, be it good or bad. The sum of the matter, when all is said and done, revere God. So this is, again, repeating the same pasuk. Revere God and observe his commandments, but this applies to all mankind. We don't want to end with this threat that God will judge you. Just be aware, God is going to bring everything into account, big and small. Um, we're going to have to answer for our behavior, which Kohelet said at the end of last chapter, chapter 11. So the epilogue allows us to study and explore wisdom and moderation. It's saying, so long as we fear God and obey his commandments and remain conscious of his watchful eye, so just make sure you understand that. So 
whether or not you want to say that these last verses and the epilogue really belong to the book or not, if they were added on or not, the fact of the matter is this is the way it is. And it doesn't completely contradict, even though it does state more firmly what Kohelet is saying, it is very much in line with what he's saying. Do good. Realize God is sovereign. Try to lead a life where you're not too ascetic. Try to lead a life where you're not too indulgent. But enjoy the moment. And engage in wisdom up to a point. And I think there's something so wise about, about this ability of Kohelet to really get right down to it and say, let's look at life as it is without adding on any of these beliefs, without trying to add on any external meanings that are not necessary and just take life as it is and see what the meaning we can derive from it is. And that's why this is really one of my favorite books. It doesn't force you to accept anything beyond your here and now experience. Very similar to Buddhism, just explore consciousness as it is on your own. And the wisdom you will probably come up with is come back to this moment. So with that, I end my class. And I want to hear from you guys anything that that uh, that you have to say, any questions or comments. But really just, again, I want to thank you for having this crazy journey alongside me. I, I grew so much just from reading this, just from understanding this. And I think hopefully I gave you some messages and I was able to be a good vessel for Kohelet's words towards you, that you could lead a more meaningful life, and that you could feel larger than yourself, that you could live a life where you don't let life pass you by, and you stop getting too much in your head, and you move a little bit more from your left brain into your right brain, and you remember the day of death, not to lament it, but to lead a more meaningful life. Thank you, guys. Any, any questions or comments? Uh, I'll just, I guess I'll start it off for me. Mm -hmm. um, reading this last, you know, the, the epilogue, um, he he wakes up to this idea that, I mean, the whole time, the way I saw the way Kohela was thinking was that live in the moment. And yes. to me, there's obviously an extreme, there's a balance, and there's a, you know, a way of doing that. And to me, it seemed like do whatever you felt was right. And now reading what, what came here to now is yeah. that he's saying that there is God. Yeah. Don't forget that you can have pleasure. You can do everything you want, but don't forget there is good and there is bad. You have That's to figure right. that out. Exactly. He didn't mention that anywhere in the book until now. He did a couple of times. That he, he mentions you have to understand that God is sovereign. He, he says it is a little bit, uh, but he doesn't mention it so often. You might, yeah. you might lose that because it's very rare. It's few and far between. But he does believe in a sovereign God. So okay. that's important. But yes, you're absolutely right. You have to with it, remain within a certain framework, even according to Kohelet. Great. I feel like young yeah. people would like this because, like, who wouldn't want to live in the moment? Yes. Enjoy every moment, but then if you lived in the moment, you didn't think like you. I feel like the Jewish books wouldn't like become Jewish books mm. if you didn't think and like you didn't. You, exactly. If you weren't wise. If you weren't trying to build the future. Yeah. Yes. So that's that's been the the struggle for me. How do I build a positive future while remaining present in the moment? How do I think about the past while being present in the moment? I still believe, and I'm trying every day to do everything with a certain presence of mind, with a certain mindfulness. That's why I meditate. Is no matter where I am, what I'm doing, what I'm even thinking about, to put that little bit of separation between myself as an observer and the thoughts that come into my mind or whatever is in my consciousness, I don't have to get lost in it. I could be more present for it. And that doesn't mean not to engage in life, not to be fully immersed in the game of life. You should be, and it's encouraged, but just remember in the back of your mind that you are awareness. You are consciousness. You're not your next thought. You're not your next feeling. That's, that feeling is happening in your consciousness. So I mean, that's, that's, it's just a nicer way of living in my mind, but great point. Yeah. Thank you. All right, guys, really, thank you to all of you, really. I, and uh, oh, regarding our next class, you know, uh, uh, some people are thinking about Michelet. I think we, we'll, we'll probably do Sefiri Yov. And that's a really long book. Um, I have a test July 1st, my step two of the boards. Bezrat Hashem, once I take that test, I think we, if, are you guys in? Dr. Nasser, Victor, uh, I know Albert's not here right now, Dorette. Are you guys in for, for Sefiri Yov? You would be around once a week? Great. Sure, you, sure thing. Okay, fantastic. I think that could be a really 
truly meaningful book to, uh, okay, Dorette's into. Really just so much in line with the way that we're thinking. And, and I think that's one of those, to be honest, Sefer Yov, I think, is even my favorite book of the Tanakh because it's so profound and it, it doesn't try to sweep evil under the rug like some other religions do. It's really such a basis of my belief in Judaism. It's Sefer Yov, and I hope to continue. Baruch Adonai, Olam, Amen, Amen. Hazak, Hazak, Vinit, Hazek. Upwards and onwards, I bless you all that we should continue learning many beautiful books like this and find the profundity in them that was intended by God and by the author. Um, and, you know, keep reading and keep asking and keep delving into wisdom. And let this not be the last time you learn Sefi Kohelet because God knows the next time you come to it, you'll find even more wisdom and more profundity. Thank you, guys. We'll be in touch, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks, Mike. Alamak.